You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. I want to take the next few classes, God willing, to uh, look at some individual uh, brethren and individual events and extract some of the principles um, involved there. And the book of Judges is something that we're all familiar with. Um, but again, just setting the principle for which we go about, hopefully, all matter of exposition, and that is the standard which is taught throughout the scriptures. We did this in our introductory series, but we haven't received the spirit of the world but the spirit, which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak. So there is a spirit or a teaching of the world. It's after a certain pattern, and there is a teaching according to God. And Paul puts the distinction between the two, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Spirit teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And of course, the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. There is, and there's forever been, an inclination to take a lot of worldly principles, worldly events, worldly things, and tie roughly the principle into Scripture. The for certain accurate way to expound the truth is when we deliberately use the Spirit teaching of God to set forth the Bible, allowing it to be its own interpreter. We can use the comparisons found in scripture to do that, and we don't find that hard. We said it before, we let the Bible be its own interpreter. It's its own, it defines itself. So grabbing examples from the modern world and applying them today can be dangerous because they lack in many ways. And of course, the way that they are recorded is not exact. This is spirit word. So we simply compare the word with comparing the word, not according to the world's wisdom. And the churches are famous for that. Just taking a little advantage or something that's going on in the world and trying to tie in a principle of godliness to it. So we're trying to avoid that. <clears throat> now, there's a setting up that we're reading here, <clears throat> as Brother Paul had mentioned, where we are in a period of time that Brother Mansfield and his expositor of Joshua, and I quote it because he says it very well, is that the children of Israel went over the river Jordan. There was a new entrance, not according to Moses, into the land established by Joshua. And then Brother Mansfield notes that it was not Yahweh's intent for Joshua to do everything for the people of Israel. That was not his purpose. So if you're someone just reading the Bible from the outside, you might think that he failed in what he was intended to do. He did not fail. And that's what Brother Paul read for us in the introduction. Those nations were left there for the generation that didn't see war and warfare is throughout the scripture. <clears throat> Excuse me. We know the principle of warfare and how it's used all throughout the word. They were there to prove the children of Israel. He left some of the people of the world for the purpose of proving us. And we're under that same pressure today. And so Joshua is removed from the scene and we have the period of judges. 
And we know that it says in chapter 13 of Joshua, he was old and stricken in years and notes that there was a lot of land to be still possessed. And we know that Joshua, again, we've got two distinct references in the New Testament where it's translated Jesus. So Joshua is the Hebrew name for the Greek Jesus. And intentionally, the chapter just before the one we'll consider today, the people served Yahweh all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua. And then what happens? Then apostasy sets in. And by the way, Brother Roberts, legal guide, points out that very thing in Article 3. He says, talking about the spirit appointment, you'll, you'll know what, what it is if you've at least, and there's no need to dig it up, we, we at least have heard of it or are familiar with it, is that, um, that we don't have the Holy Spirit gifts today. And then he mentions and is folded there that after the days of Christ and the apostles, there arose an apostasy in the apostolic community. And notice what he says. And he references Judges 2 and 7, after the analogy of the case of Israel. Their first settlement in Canaan, they served Yahweh all the days of Joshua, all the days the elders had outlived him. That's that first generation, those that had seen the works that Yahweh did for Israel. And then, of course, apostasy prevailed more and more and more, as the apostles by the Spirit predicted would be the case. And they began to pass off the scene. And that's what we're dealing with in the period of the judges. And God willing, in the last screen, we'll refer to that, just talking about Bible chronology. So... Just a little introduction here. And his people, as Brother Paul said in his opening prayer, very appropriately, Yahweh owns them. He's purchased them by redemption. So he was the one that sold them into the hand of their enemies. He's the one that strengthened the enemies. He is the one that sold them into the hand of their enemies for the purpose of learning obedience. When they cried, he raised up judges or deliverers. And again, as Brother Paul said appropriately, it is the word saviors used throughout the scriptures. So we already know by that language, we're in the principle of an allegory pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. As Brother Thomas says in Van Rosas, the Christ idea was in the world long before Christ, beginning with creation. That's in Phanerosis. We've quoted, quoted it before. Well, now, in, <clears throat> in the book of, um, and we have it here just leading up to the event that we'll consider today, a very short period of the judge. And matter, matter of fact, this, this chapter concludes with just a, a couple of verses about Shamgar, that he was a judge in Israel for a period of time. He delivered Israel. And then not a whole lot of detail about it. Why is that? And Brother Jim Cowie on this same subject said, and I thought it was a very good point, because the things that are recorded and the judges that are recorded are a type of Christ. And John goes into that principle, closing out the signs of John, saying there are many things, many other signs that he did that are not written in this book, but these are recorded so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So again, we're just comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. We don't need to grab a worldly analogy. We don't need to talk about what's not recorded in the Bible and put all sorts of assumptions into it and insert ideas of our own thinking. We know what the pattern is. When the judge was dead, they corrupted themselves again. 
and off they went. And Yahweh delivered them in the hands of their enemy for a period of time. They cry unto Yahweh, and he sends again a savior to them. So in Judges chapter 3, verse 12, that we didn't have read for us, but I think we're generally familiar with it, if we're not all very familiar with it. We'll quote all the verses, so there's no need to, to labor um, over the fact that we didn't cite all of this specifically. It's pretty simplistic. The children of Israel, as was their pattern, did evil again in the sight of Yahweh. So again, Yahweh strengthened their enemy. It's Yahweh that strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they've done evil in the sight. <clears throat> so Yahweh's under control of what's going on with Eglon. And I'll say from the outset, what we read in verse 13 is a confederacy of an army. And when we get to the latter part of the chapter and the trumpet is blown and, and Ehud comes forth in power, I do believe it is a prophecy of the latter day events. We're addressing it more in the principle of the atonement of Christ and a prophecy of the kingdom of God is also within this parable. We didn't have time to deal with it here. So there is a confederacy. And they smite Israel and they possess the city of palm trees. It's very, very significant because Jericho was the city of palm trees. It's the very first place they captured when they entered the land under Joshua. So they're taken all the way back to the principle of entering the land under Christ, so to speak. And we're dealing with the king of the Moabites here. That is where Moses died. He died in the plains of Moab, looking out towards the land. When Yahweh said, you cannot inherit, you can see it with your eyes, but you will not inherit because the law cannot bring redemption. So it says, quote, he died there in the land of Moab. We've talked about some of this in basic principle form before. Not difficult to understand. So he's taking them back to the Joshua principle. Under the subjection of the king of Moab, where Moses died. <clears throat> As Brother Barling says in Law and Grace, he says it was not only Moses that died there, but his name is represented and tied to the law of Moses, as it's called. Therefore, it was the law, showing that the law could not bring redemption. We've shared this quote before. So outside of the law, when they go through Jordan, they enter the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That was a land that Moses did not bring them into. And when in distress, they cry for the provision of deliverers or saviors, so to speak. And they were intended to teach Israel the necessity for a savior and salvation in Christ. The palm trees, as we know, going back to Exodus 15, there were 12 wells that fed the 70 palm trees. It is an inheritance through baptism, the first place, the city of palm trees, Jericho, that really represents the inheritance for Jew and Gentile under Christ, not just under the law. And here's some quick comparative notes for you. These are addendum notes when they're in a yellow screen or a kind of a faded yellow screen. You can look it up in your spare time. It's a principle we've addressed before. No inheritance will be under the law of Moses because it manifested sin 
and no perfect obedience was possible. We needed the condemnation from the law to be released. Christ was the one that provided that at the same time, elevating the law from ritual to an observance of conscience and obedience in the spirit and the principle of it. So the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for a period of 18 years. And here we're now developing that principle of serving sin. Remember, they're in the land through the waters of Jordan to the very first city subdued by Joshua. And that's where he took them. And they're serving a king of the flesh. All goes to Romans 6, and you and I both know that. And Eglon means not just a calf, but it is the word that is used for molten calf of Israel's idolatry. And that's what our presiding brother read for us in the introductory verses. Those nations were there to prove them, to see if Israel would put them out little by little, but they didn't. In fact, they learned their gods, they served and they worshiped them. And so they're subject to them. And 18 years is also the period specifically mentioned of the daughter of Abraham who was bowed down, who had the spirit of infirmity and had to be loosed on the Sabbath day. That was a loosening after being bound for a period of 18 years. So you have all of this coming under the constitution of the law of sin and death. That's where this bondage is. And here again, the quote from Galatians 4, where Paul says, in bondage under the elements of the law, but Christ has come to redeem us from under the law. Everywhere you turn, and we've addressed this plenty, certainly in the book of Acts, that bondage is referred to as the law of sin and death of which we needed release from. So this is the condition that the children of Israel are in. And when they cry unto Yahweh, and that's very, very important, knock and it shall be opened. Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you will. It's incumbent upon us to pursue it. So they cry and Yahweh raised them up a deliverer. It's very important. Yahweh raised up the deliverer. His name was Ehud, the son of Gera. He was the son of the right hand, Benjamite, but he was a man that was left-handed. And it was by him, this man who was left-handed, the son of the right hand, whom Yahweh raised up, that the children of Israel, interesting language, sent a present to Eglon, the king of Moab. They're trying to appease the very one that Ehud, the savior raised up by Yahweh, will destroy. And as we mentioned before, that word deliverer, you have it in the quotes before you, is constantly translated savior or saved. And Moab, by the way, means of his father. Check me on this. Look at it in Strong's. So you have a deliverer delivering the people from a king whose name is and from the land of the distinction of the father. That's the natural man of the flesh. And Ehud means unity. To unify, to bring to one. Not just us with him, but us to Yahweh. And you certainly know what Ehud means. It's the son of the right hand. It's the son of the right hand that is going to be Yahweh's savior. 
Therefore, it is Yahweh that raised him up. Because notice the language. It says that Christ is one whose Yahweh's hand is upon, the man of his right hand, the man that Yahweh made strong for himself. And if you note the margin where it says a man left-handed, it doesn't distinguish a man necessarily who's left-handed. And as we all know, like the Benjamites in general, they were left-handed men, extremely coordinated slinging the stones with the left and the right hand, as most left-handed people are. Their hand-eye coordination tends to be significantly better. But the margin says he was shut up of his right hand. Now that's a little bit different. It means he has no strength of his own right hand. And by default thereof, and I don't know if he was impaired or what it's implying, or if his right arm was shrunken up, injured, whatever it was, the point is he's left-handed because he has no strength in his own right hand. He's the savior or deliverer that Yahweh raised up to deliver Israel under the bondage of King Sin. And that's what Christ said. I do not speak the words myself. How much more else, brothers and sisters? That's the problem with worldly analogies. That's why we should compare spiritual things with spiritual things. We could give any class and give reference point to events that are going on in the world, maybe in our own workplace, in our own ecclesia, whatever it happens to be. <clears throat> Christ spoke only the words that he was taught of the Father. He demanded. He could do nothing of himself. The words that he speak, the will that he did, was the Father. He is a man that's going to destroy this king that has brought the children of Israel into servitude and bondage, from which they must be released. But he's shut up with his own right hand. He has no power of his own right hand. He is the man whom Yahweh has made strong. It was the spirit of Yahweh, without measure, that rested upon him. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, quick understanding, reverence and respect for Yahweh and fear. He didn't judge her after the sight of his own eyes, and how cloudy is that for all of us? He was the one who was upheld by the spirit of Yahweh, says Isaiah 42, and that Yahweh's arm sustained him. So Christ perpetually brought all salvation unto Yahweh, which is why salvation in the New Testament is attributed to God. Christ was the vehicle, and the man strengthened by him and filled with the spirit to overcome the flesh. But the work was by Yahweh. And that's why 2 Corinthians, as we teach in first principles, says all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself. Now, by Jesus Christ, that's the ministry of reconciliation, but it's God that was in Christ to reconcile the world to himself. He was the man of his right hand who he made strong for himself. We are being reconciled to God by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who spoke none of his own words, who did none of his own will, who was shut up of his own right hand. And he's called the son of Gerah 
tiny, the smallest of a grain or weight. It signifies the humility of the Messiah, brothers and sisters. He's the son of Gera, and that's that term, Gera. That's the root of it. It's a very small grain or weight. Of course, we have ounces in our country, pounds, of course, tons, and the gradations of weight go up. This is a very small one. He's a man weighty with his words. He's weighty because he does the will of Yahweh. He's very small of himself and shut up with his own right hands. My father loves me because I lay down my life, which is the Greek meaning to ensure a result. No man takes it. I lay it down on myself. He took upon himself no reputation. He made himself a servant. And for that reason, God has highly exalted him. It says in Hebrews 5 and 5, he glorified not himself. He was lowly, riding in Jerusalem, riding upon an ass, a foal, colt of an ass. Supreme humility. It's only by this man that fashioned himself and humbled himself, obedient to the death of the cross, that sin can be taken out of the way. You and I don't have it. We don't have it in our character to do what Christ did. I surely don't. And by him, here's the identification with Christ, a representative man. By him, the children of Israel sent a present to Eglon the king. They're looking to appease the king that reigns over them. How often do we do that? How often are we intimidated by the flesh in the world? Plenty of times, too embarrassing to say. He's the means by which the children of Israel are going to send a present to King Sin, who has them under bondage. And God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. We've been through all this on the atonement. But he has something totally different in mind. Look what it says in the very next verse, 16. The children of Israel, what? Ehud makes a dagger of two edges, a cubit in length. You know what the two-edged dagger is. It's a word sword. It's the word of God. Scriptures tell us that. You know that from Hebrews 4. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, Ephesians 6.17. You know that as well as I do. And a cubit is the measure of a man. It is the standard of measurement for a man. A cubit after a man, the apocalypse, Deuteronomy. It's the cubit by the measurement of man. So he shares our nature. And he's taken from among his brethren. But let's never get this cloudy, brothers and sisters. The Lord Jesus Christ and the way that he dealt with sin was totally different than you and I. He partook of flesh and blood. He likewise took part of the same. But he destroyed him that had the power of death, personification, devil. Peter says Christ suffered for us in the flesh. In the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers unto him that was able to save him. He definitely shared our nature. But we have to be careful that we do not drag Christ's nature into his mindset. Look what it says. He makes this sword of two edges, a cubit of length, the measure of a man. 
but he hides it under his raiment by his right thigh. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. We just ruin the word, brothers and sisters. We ruin the word when we cloud it with worldly analogies. It's the precise language of scripture that makes it beautiful. He shared our nature, but under his raiment was a thinking that you and I do not have. Remember, he shut up of his own right hand. Yahweh raised up a deliverer. His thinking is after that of the father. I and my father are one. I've come to do my father's will. His will is totally different than ours. And the right thigh is where the righteous draw the sword in the Song of Solomon. And it's girded, and that represents the mind. Gird up the loins of your mind, having your loins girded about with the truth, girded about with your, light, your lights burning. It's a thinking. It's a combustion. It's something that's going on in the mind of Christ that is different than you and I. You and I often send a present to temper down the oppression. We somehow think by appeasing the flesh, we're going to appease the flesh. I do it plenty in my life. It doesn't work. The only way is to completely destroy it. And that's what this man did. A judge, a deliverer, a savior. After Joshua showed them the way to enter the land. And he brought the present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. And Eglon was a very fat man, exceedingly obese. He represents not just the flesh, but flesh in its enormous manifestation. <clears throat> and brethren will often say this in the converse way of what I'm going to say. They will say that, well, Christ was tempted in all manner like we are. Yeah, without sin. Like if I think about sin, he must have thought about sin. In the literal sense, was he tempted in all manner like us? Did we endure such a contradiction of sinners? Did we stand so firmly for the truth that our own family members said he's beside himself? Did we suffer, or even our own faithful disciples forsook us? That's how resolved we are to stand for the truth. I think that's dishonest, brothers and sisters. We use that quote as a convenience to justify sin, to say that Christ thought like us. But we never think of the effects in the other direction. Nobody had a visage so marred and was spat upon and humiliated and endured such a contradiction of sinners as the Lord Jesus Christ. And accordingly, his reward was the greatest, as it should have been. And when he had made an end to offer the present, he sent away the people that bear the present, and he himself turned by the quarries that were by Gilgal and said, I have a secret errand unto thee, O king. And he said, keep silence. And all that stood by him went out. It's one-on-one. -on -one. It's Yahweh's deliverer. Strengthened and raised up by him, shut up of his own right hand, girded about with the word of truth, and an exceedingly fat man. It's Christ destroying 
the flesh. And the literal teaches the figurative. It is very appropriate, brothers and sisters, to the principle that it embodies, that Christ was left alone. Though he said, all men will forsake me, but I'm not alone, my Father is with me. But he was wholly separate from sinners. It was very significant in the type that all the men of Israel, all the mighty men, including Jonathan, Saul's son, were present while Goliath mocked. And David alone said, I will fight him. Joseph alone endured because there is one man among us. There's only one that can destroy sin in the flesh to its completion. And this he did by the quarries, the place of idols, at Gilgal. Gilgal is where Joshua circumcised the people. It's the cutting off of the flesh. It's not hard to comprehend this allegory and this individual event before us. By the way, the whole thing and everything that we need to know is recorded here in these few scattered verses. This is all we need to know. We need to know the truth and let the spiritual things be interpreter of the spiritual things, comparing the Bible with itself. This is all we have, and it's all we need. And Ehu came unto him, and that's another important thing. Remember, Christ was the aggressor. We often represent Christ as sheepish, like when it comes to his trial in the wilderness after his baptism. We like to interpret that as a man so mentally broken down that he has no conviction of the scriptures anymore when that's immediately what came out of his mouth. David ran at Goliath. Christ came to him. He was not passive. Christ came out against the flesh. And he was sitting in a summer parlor, which he had for himself alone. It's one man against one man. And he who had said, I have the word of God for thee. We've got it in our notes there. That's the word. The word message is the same one translated word of Yahweh in the scriptures and the word of God. That's the sharp two-edged dagger he has under his raiment, girded about to his right thumb. That's what he has. That's what he's going to do to this exceedingly lusty man. And the summer parlor means that it is the upper room, which is Amplified Bible and Strong's Act. It's for Christ. Took of the bread and the wine and said, this is his flesh crucified and his blood poured out. And what does Eglon do? He rises out of his seat. <clears throat> Two principles here. What happens when you quote the word of God? Well, I can tell you myself. Uh, it's worthless to refer to other brethren. When I read something that pricks my conscience and there's nobody else around and I'm studying the scriptures, I wince. Almost my instinctive thought is maybe it doesn't say that. Here he is in the summer parlor 
and he arises out of his seat. It is significant that Christ was, lift, quote, lifted up from the earth to draw all men unto him. The only way to crucify the flesh is to be lifted up from the earth. The only way to see the visions of Yahweh, Ezekiel, John, and the apocalypse, was to be taken by the locks of hair to go up. There's a door open in heaven. Is to be lifted up. Because of the things of the flesh are contrary to the things of the spirit. It's why it's an upper room. It's why it's Mount Zion. We've said this before. It's why it's Valley of Hinnom and it's low. It's the Dead Sea and it's low. It's not the living waters that will come forth. The things that are exalted, Christ had to be lifted up to crucify the flesh. It's the only way to do it. And he who put forth his left hand because he had no strength in his right hand, margin, and he pulls the dagger from the strength of the right that was under his loins girded. A two-edged sword. It's the word of God. And he thrust it into his belly. So hard. So hard. That the handle of the sword went in after the blade and the fat closed the entire weapon inside it. You know what the scriptures say about the belly and the people that are the enemies of the cross of Christ serve their own belly. <clears throat> Excuse me, serpent upon his belly, so on and so forth. Because the entire word of God is needed to destroy the flesh. The entire word of God. And this is what Brother Roberts has to say. And by the way, Ehud appears eight times in Judges. The cutter off of the flesh. And this is one of those references from Brother Roberts. I told you when you read, you kind of squirm. You know, it pierces your conscience. The word of God is perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Here's what Brother Roberts says. Not partially, but truly. Not one or two, not like those that prefer, perform one set of duties and neglect others. Ouch. Ouch. Who attend lectures but absent themselves from the breaking of bread, like to argue about first principles but to relish exhortation to holiness and prayer. They're interested in the signs of the time but dull to the law of Christ. They take an interest in the stranger, forget the love of the brethren. The man of God, ouch, like I said, these hurt. Man of God furnished unto all good works will not be found in opposite extremes. He will not exalt charity. This is a great blanket that goes over everything. Above the gospel, he will not preach love where the word of God is corrupted. He will not advocate peace where there is not purity. There is a right division of the word of the truth, and there's the handling of the word of God deceitfully. Brother Roberts. For my own standing, I'll finish there and not quote anymore. So he who went forth from the porch, and he shut the doors on the summer parlor. Upon him, two men, all men sent out from Eglon, all the children of Israel sent back after they presented the present. It's one man crucifying the flesh. And he locked them 
and he was gone out. When that happened, Eglon's, the flesh, servants of the flesh, servants of sin, Romans 6, came and they saw the doors of the parlor were locked and a stone was rolled upon the sepulcher. They tarried till they were ashamed. It's the same word in Genesis 2, verse 22. Adam and Eve were naked. They were not ashamed until sin. Sin is the exposing of shame, which is why literally we need a covering in this world. Because it's embarrassing to be naked. And, of course, in the principle of the atonement. When they opened out the doors of the parlor, therefore, they took a key and opened them. Behold, their Lord was fallen down dead on the earth from a man that was lifted up from the earth to crucify the flesh. Having destroyed sin in the flesh, Eglon's servants witnessed that Christ had escaped from the doors that had been locked. It was not possible that he could be holding from it. It was the ultimate, his resurrection, and you can get this all throughout scriptures. It was his resurrection that proved that he was holy, Romans 1. Holiness, resurrection of the dead, proved to be the seed of David, etc. It was his resurrection that proved he was sinless. And he did destroy sin in the flesh. Therefore, the apocalypse begins with, I'm he that liveth. I was dead. I live forevermore and have the keys to the grave and death. And this, by the way, brothers and sisters, is something that I completely my mistake. I forgot to put this in the introductory slides and notes in our introduction of allegories and types. I should have put it there. Doctrine and metaphors. Now, we're reading through this account, and every one of us that knows the truth, um, which we all do, we can see it. But it should be noticed that within first principles themselves, the doctrine of first principles, there are loads of metaphors to carry us into deeper teaching of the word of God. For example, the Judges 3, you have a reigning king with servants and subjects, and one that's going to deliver them. That's based on principles. So when we're taught first principles, and we use these in first principle doctrine, about the reigning power of sin, it actually says that of Christ, his resurrection. Death has no more dominion over him. Brethren, that word means exactly what it says. Let sin not reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey it with the lust and all throughout Romans chapter 6. Predominantly in the book of Romans, sin should be capitalized as a reigning power. And it has servants, the prince of this world cast out. What about the first principles? When we get into the doctrine of the resurrection, Paul says it's like the glory of the sun, the glory of the moon, the glory of the stars. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It's sown, says Christ, a seed has to go into the ground, another metaphor, and die before it can be raised. 
The resurrected are called the stars of the firmament. In the context of Daniel 12, you will know it. The same thing in 1 Thessalonians 4. Those that are asleep, we will not prevent those, those of us that are alive. We will be lifted up into the clouds to meet Christ in the aerial. The seed of Abraham is called the sand and the stars for multitude. The seed of David is like the moon, that's not correct, the sun that should shine forever. Entering into the kingdom, Hebrews 4, is called the rest and the Sabbath. So even in first principle doctrine, we find the employment of metaphors. It doesn't just use vague language talking about the resurrection of the dead. We're talking about the seed of Abraham being planted again in the land. Metaphors are employed. And Brother Thomas says this in Eureka Volume 2, I believe, that the word of God is a mingling of the literal and symbolic. The literal to teach and emphasize the doctrine, the symbolic to expand its principle. That's very important. Because brethren will they say on the need to understand Thomas Yet our first principle doctrine demands it. How would you ever believe the 7,000-year plan without an appeal to the principles of allegories and types? It's nowhere stated directly. I know no Christadelphian that doesn't believe it. And most of the time, brethren, you will find, brethren, that naysay the critical importance of employing this basically don't want to do so. And I realize I'm insinuating motive, and that's dangerous ground. But it's principally because they know the work involved. You have to compare spiritual things with spiritual things. You just can't grab a little worldly analogy and then apply scriptures to it and let that settle. It's way more than that. So Ehud escaped while they tarried and passed beyond the quarries and escaped to Sarath. Now, I said in the beginning there was a confederacy with Moab. And Sierath is Seir. It's the feminine form of Seir. It rises out of Seir. And I do believe there's a prophecy involved here that is not difficult to understand, to see. But he escaped because Christ is the firstborn from the dead. And he passed beyond the quarries. It means to cross over, to take away. And Sierath is the female goat the she-goat used for the sin offering. He's changed from mortal to immortal. And look what happens next. And again, blow ye the trumpet in Zion, Judges 3. There clearly is a prophecy involved in this as well. It says it came to pass when he was come that he blew a trumpet in the Mount Ephraim, which means double fruit, and the children of Israel went down with him from that mount of double fruit, and he before them. And he said, follow after me. Yahweh has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. And they went down after him and took the fords of Jordan. Jordan. Toward Moab. 
and suffered not an old man of the flesh to make it through Jordan. You can read it when you know the truth. As Brother Thomas says, as clearly as his stated words itself. I suggest double fruit means just that. It's Ehud, then his brethren. Christ the first fruits, then his brethren, which were called first fruits after his return. The trumpet, of course, is used for a symbol of the resurrection of the dead. It was also used to announce the jubilee year from release from bondage. Look at the significance. The National Day of Atonement, the ascension of a new key, king, and the call of people to warfare. And he went before them. Hebrews 2 says he is the captain of their salvation. And they followed after him. As he saw them mending their nets, because Christ is not just a man to be admired, we have to take up of our individual cross and follow him. Take up the cross. Follow. Every man individually has to do it. And no man passed over. The old man has got to be crucified and put to death. And all of them, just like the one man Ehud with the one man Eglon, who was an exceedingly lusty man, it says, all of them killed 10,000 lusty men. It's the number of the redeemed. What he did, we have to do. What he did, we have to do. The redeemed will be those that crucified the flesh. That's scary. You and I both know when it's convenient, sorry, when it's inconvenient, we oftentimes don't do that. The 10,000 is the number of the redeemed. It just writes like a book in the clearest language for people that know the truth. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest 80 years. Now, the number 40 denotes a period of probation, after which there is redemption. Noah, children of Israel in the wilderness, Goliath went out 40 days, Elijah in the mount, Moses in the mount, Christ being tempted in the wilderness. Why? In the Judges, the salvation of a deliverer, and these references are here right before you, is noted as a period was given to them of rest of 40 years. Why is it doubled here? Remember, we're in Ephraim, double fruit. We also suggest, brothers and sisters, and I don't think I know myself, I do not stress this enough in Bible study. It represents the strength of the truth. In mortality, the days of our lives are three, three score years and 10 by reason of strength, 80 years. Bodily exercise profiteth little under the law, but godliness is profitable unto all things having promise of the life that now is and that which is to come. It's not as if this life is all doom and gloom. I don't think we appreciate this enough. I don't say it enough. I used to when my daughters were young and growing up. <coughs> Excuse me, to emphasize the beauty of the truth. When the failures of the world were on every side, 
Here's complete joy in the life that now is. Look at the world. <clears throat> they self-destruct. Nobody's oppressing them. They self-destruct. Their marriages self-destruct. They financially self-destruct. The people that have fame and fortune, they've got no pressure in the temporal. They self-destruct. It's the life that now is and that which is to come. Look at all the means, brethren, that have been blessed in intellect and, and, and material means have used for the benefit of the truth. It's the life that now is and that which is to come. Raise your children in the truth, and you tell me it's not better than the world. Fortify your marriage in the truth and see it's not better than the world. So we'll conclude with this, brothers and sisters. By the way, remember, this is Moab. This is Moab, where Ruth, the Moabitess, is brought into Israel. And we've mentioned this before. There is one particular thing that is noted, mentioned at least four times in the book of Judges. And it's this quote, you and I both know. In those days of the Judges, there was no king. Every man did which was right in his own eyes. And Brother H.P. Mansfield points out that there is a succession leading from the law of Moses to the kingdom of God in the period, in the chronological order of the books in the way that they're set forth. The death of Moses, the law, Deuteronomy, crossing of Jordan, Jesus, the new entrance under baptism, judges after his death, as Brother Roberts points out, even in the Ecclesial Guide, then Ruth. There's apostasy among the Jews, then Ruth the Gentile is called. Then Samuel, the kingdom of God, then the kings, the reign of Solomon, the throne is established. Chronicles, the temple is prepared and built. It is restored under Ezra and Nehemiah, and the bride and her redeemer exalted in the silver empire of Esther. And here's what I think is remarkable. Look at the part that I have in a box there. When the Jews turn to apostasy after the death of Joshua and the Gentiles graft in. Do you know the word kingdom does not appear in the book of Judges or Ruth? We are in a period now where Israel, after the death of Joshua, has turned to apostasy, and the Gentiles have been grafted into that hope. There is no kingdom of God right now. It's coming, but it doesn't exist in its national state, in its political state, in its religious state, as it should today. So that, brothers and sisters, just these few verses, the book of Judges, is absolutely crystal clear when you possess the key to the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Thank you.